Okay, three, two, one. Oh my goodness. Good morning, good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports. Oh, I'm so, I'm, I'm pumped up, man. This is going to be my favorite episode in a long time. Uh, today is Monday, November 5th. Uh, it was a great, wonderful weekend in sports. There is so much to talk about. Um, personally, I had a great weekend. Like I, I just, awesome, had fun at football games. Uh, and this really is going to be one of my best shows I've done in a long time. I feel really good about it. Um, and I want to say briefly before we start the show, I've been through a lot of highs and lows in the last year of my life, and I'm so grateful for Strong Opinion Sports. Every single day, I have this thing I can pour my love and my passion into. And when I'm having a bad day, a good day, no matter what, I can distract myself with Strong Opinion Sports. It's kind of an escape for me, and I'm so glad that you guys uh, watch, and it means so much to me. So thank you so much for tuning in. Again, today is Monday, November 5th, and um, I want to start with a story, like often I do. So, uh... So two weeks ago, I was on a date, uh, Portland, Oregon. It was amazing. It was a wonderful night, probably the best date I've been on in a long time. Um, and we had a reservation for 7 o'clock. And so we're on our way to our reservation. And we, we stop and we see a mural there on the, on the wall. And we're like, that's really cool. We should stop and get out and check out the mural. And, uh, you know, it's, it's pushing 640. We're running a little late, but we, we'll make it still if we get out. Just take a quick picture. And uh, we take a picture with the mural. It's amazing. It's really cool. And then off in the distance, we see fireworks out on the Portland waterfront. We're like, you know what? Screw it. We're going to go check out the fireworks. We went and we walked. It's raining at this point. We walked all the way to the fireworks. We're making out the rain. It was awesome. I loved it. Um, And uh, what happened was we missed a reservation. And we made a conscious decision. You know, this fireworks show is so cool. This mural is really pretty. It's a cool moment. We'd rather have this moment and and have this cool alternative plan than our original plan of going to the reservation at 7 o'clock. We missed our reservation, went to a different restaurant, had an amazing night. It was awesome. And it's because we were willing to change our plan. We weren't stuck like, oh, we have to be there at 7 o'clock. We said, let's just go with the flow. If a different opportunity or a better opportunity presents itself, let's do it. Let's go for it. And so we heard amazing. I heard an amazing piece of news out of Cleveland this morning. Apparently, Bruce Arians... Bruce Arians, the former Arizona Cardinals head coach, is interested in the Browns coaching job. He quoted, he said this, he said that the Browns job is the only job that would get him out of retirement. I love this. This is awesome. This is an open invitation. Hey, Cleveland Browns, my name is Bruce Arians. I'm available. If you want me, I will come coach for you. It's fantastic. And I, I mean, it's, it's awesome. I really hope that we can speak this into existence This is a wonderful opportunity for the Cleveland Browns. Bruce Arians is the best candidate I have heard of to this point. You know, there are rumors right now, and it seems like the Browns' plan currently is to go after Lincoln Riley, the Oklahoma head coach, or Josh McDaniels, the New England Patriots offensive coordinator. Those are the two favorites right now, Josh McDaniels or Lincoln Riley. And that's a good plan. That's a solid plan. Your reservation at 7 o'clock, it's not going to be a bad night. But Bruce Arians... That's a fireworks show the weekend before Halloween. That's amazing. And if you can nail, if you can get Bruce Arians as your head coach, you do everything you can to make that happen. That's what I would do. I, I love this. I, don't, I understand the Browns might have a plan right now, but Bruce Arians is far, far better than Lincoln Riley or Josh McDaniels. Here's why. Lincoln Riley's young. He's fun. He understands offense. And sure, that's great. But Bruce Arians has been there before. And he's not just been there before. A lot of the other veteran coaches we're hearing thrown around are guys that have, they've had some meager success. They won a couple games, but they're really like an old defensive coordinator that he's had a head coaching job, but it doesn't mean he's going to be successful. Bruce Arians is not a retread of an old coach. He is a coach who has won at a high level in the NFL. He has turned around programs. He has won at a high level and he's done it before. That's awesome. I like Lincoln Riley, but let's be honest, Lincoln Riley's never had experience turning around a franchise, turning around a program. Lincoln Riley was handed the keys, like truthfully, to a really good Oklahoma program, said, hey, take it and run. If I was handed the keys to a Lamborghini, I can make that work for quite a while. I can can drive the Lamborghini for miles. 
And that's what happened to Lincoln Riley. He was given a wonderful situation in Oklahoma, and he's done a great job with it, let's be honest. But Bruce Arians, on the other hand, has turned around bad programs. That's a different experience, and that's a different level of expertise that I would want if I was a Cleveland Browns. Even better than that is Bruce Arians is great with quarterbacks. Bruce Arians, the best years of Andrew Luck came because of Bruce Arians. If I'm the Browns, I'm doing everything I can to go get Bruce Arians. He scouted Baker Mayfield when he was the head coach of the Arizona Cardinals. Let me remind you, Bruce Arians is the guy who reinvigorated Carson Palmer's career. And he took the Arizona Cardinals to the NFC Championship. I, I, I don't know. If I could get Bruce Arians and I'm the Browns, he is the best coach available. And that is the guy I would go after and I would get. I mean, we remember injuries were kind of a problem with the Cardinals. That's why they ran down. But legitimately, I love, I love Bruce Arians. He's one of my favorite coaches around. And he has nothing to lose. He's won before. He's retired. He's coming because he wants to be a part of Cleveland and he wants to turn it around. There's no pressure. He doesn't care. And I, I think that's a strength of his. I would go after Bruce Arians. I think it's interesting. After firing the head coach, Hugh Jackson, the Browns are in a 0-1. They lost to the Kansas City Chiefs. And that's not a surprise. You know, the Chiefs are a better team than the Browns. Um, but right now, the Browns are struggling on offense. They're dropping way too many passes. They're having small issues that I, I, I think a guy like Bruce Arians could turn around. The Browns need an offensive coach. And Bruce Arians perfectly fits the bill. Again, I'm going to repeat the things that make him good for this job. He has experience. Been a head coach before. He's won at a high level before. He's turned around bad cultures before. And he's great with quarterbacks. Bruce Arians is a wonderful fit for Baker Mayfield's personality. And I really, truly, honestly believe the Cleveland Browns should do everything they can to make Bruce Arians their next head coach. All right, we have a great show today. I am so excited. Uh, That was not going to be my opening rant. I woke up this morning, I found out, and I was like, oh, wow, Bruce Arians. And I got immediately excited. I had to talk about it. Um, The next part of this show is really the meat and potatoes of this podcast. It's going to be fantastic. But down the road, we are going to talk about uh, John Harbaugh and Ohio State. Is he okay at Michigan? We're going to talk about the Pac-12 championship game. We're going to talk about USC. We're going to talk about the college football playoff and why I think you, uh, the Pac-12 has no chance to make it. And uh, a lot of good stuff ahead I'm going to talk about. But right now I want to talk about this. I'm going to make a statement that you guys might not like, but I think it's a very important statement to make. <clears throat> Take a deep breath first because I want to get my mind right for this. I, uh, I don't know. I'm excited for this one. I've been writing papers actually. Behind the scenes, look, I, I write, um, I've been writing a paper in class about what makes a player the greatest of all time, kind of hosting the debate. And I've been able to listen and, and use all kinds of other sources, and it's kind of been my dream paper because it's the subject I know really well is sports, and I've been really, really lucky to have that. And I want to now focus on that title, The Goat Conversation. So I want to make this statement. Winning championships... Winning titles does not automatically make you the greatest of all time. It does not make you the GOAT to have, yeah, Tom Brady has five championships and Michael Jordan has six rings. That's awesome. That's a weak argument. That's not enough. Here's why. The nature of team sport requires a team. It's not just, it's not just a quarterback that wins a Super Bowl. It's a whole team of people. Again, Tom Brady's been to five Super Bowls. He's won five, been to eight. That alone does not automatically make him the greatest quarterback of all time. Here's the best argument I can make against that. Do you know who Jake Coker is? I want to ask you, why wasn't Jake Coker a number one pick? Jake Coker is a former Alabama quarterback who won a national championship. And if winning championships equates to being great, means you're the best, then according to that logic, Jake Coker would have been a number one overall pick. If winning rings makes you great, he would have been, but he wasn't. And Jake Coker actually went undrafted, signed to the Cardinals, bailed out, was not a good NFL quarterback. He works in like tech industry or something now. He's not, he's not involved with football. 
if winning national championships, if winning titles makes you great, then Trent Dilfer's a great quarterback. Then Trent Dilfer's a better quarterback than Dan Marino. And Tim Tebow, Jay Coker, Joe Flacco, they are all all-time elite great quarterbacks. My point is this. Winning championships is not a good enough argument. We're, we're in a rare situation right now in college football. This might never happen again where arguably the best quarterback in college football, Tua Tungavaloa, also plays for the best team in college football. And so he's going to win, I think, multiple national championships. But when Tua Tungavaloa becomes a number one overall pick, it will not be because of his championships. It will be because he's a great football player who makes good reads and does a lot of stuff at an NFL level. Again, I repeat, championships does not equate to greatness. It doesn't mean you're a bum. Jake Coker dominated in college football. I'm happy for him. But he was not the best quarterback in college at that time. He played on the best team. There's an article by Hunter Van Asten. He's got a great quote. He says that Super Bowls are not a quarterback stat. Couldn't agree more. Now, full disclosure, I believe... Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback of all time. But my argument does not only rely on his championships. There's more to Tom Brady. Tom Brady has heaps of records. His longevity, he's 41 years old, still dominating at a high level. He's won more with less with weaker teams. He's done more with less, had bad teammates, still won tremendously. But to say that someone is great simply because of their championships. The reason Michael Jordan is the GOAT is because of his six rings. Not enough to me. There's a lot more layers you need to explore than just five championships. Therefore, automatically Tom Brady's the greatest. Football, basketball, all of them, they're team sports. You need great coaching. You need a lot of help. You need good wide receivers. You need good teammates. So I repeat this. To say that someone is the greatest of all time because of their championships is a weak argument. There's a lot more depth you need to say. And again, leaning on championships to make an argument that someone is the GOAT is not the right way to go. I want to continue this train of thought. So on Sunday, on Sunday, we saw four great quarterbacks play. Went to head-to-head. It was awesome. Ton of fun. We saw Jared Goff play Drew Brees. Aaron Rodgers went head-to-head with Tom Brady. Well, Tom Brady and Drew Brees are the ones who won. They won those matchups. Jared Goff and Aaron Rodgers lost. Why? Why did Jared Goff and Aaron Rodgers lose? Better leadership. Better leadership won both games. The Patriots' leadership beat the Packers. And the Saints' leadership beat the L.A. Rams. I want to focus on the Rams and the Saints first. So on Sunday, the Rams beat the Saints. Excuse me. Wow. On Sunday, the Saints beat the Rams 45-35. to And they pulled away at the end. With eight minutes left, they built a 10-point lead. Didn't give it up. And I, I really believe you can praise Drew Brees' leadership without tearing down Jared Goff. Jared Goff is not a bad leader. Drew Brees is just the best leader among quarterbacks in the entire NFL. At the quarterback position, there's no better leader than Drew Brees. Jared Goff is going to be in the next group. So right now, dominating the NFL, you have Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, and Drew Brees. The next group of guys, that next top tier of quarterbacks is going to involve Patrick Mahomes, Jared Goff, and and somebody else. It's to be determined. Maybe Carson Wentz, maybe Deshaun Watson. I don't know yet. But right now, the best young quarterbacks in the NFL are Jared Goff and Patrick Mahomes. But right now, it's still Drew Brees. In six years from now, I'm going to pick Jared Goff to win games in big matchups like the Saints and the Rams. I picked Drew Brees because it's Drew Brees. He's a great leader. He's got more experience. Goff was fantastic on Sunday. He made a throw to the right sideline where he throws the ball before Cooper Cup has even broken down and turned to the outside. It's unbelievable. It's ridiculous. I mean, you throw the ball 
I throw the ball. Then the guy starts to chop his feet, break down, go out. And then the ball just hit Cooper Cup. I think it was Cooper Cup. Literally right in the face as he turned. Awesome. That's impressive. Uh, impressive. What's the anticipation? You don't see that very often in the NFL. Um, especially not from a young quarterback, a third-year quarterback, Jared Goff. And even look, Jared Goff's interception was, I don't know. Uh, it, was, it was a great play by the Saints. Saints linebacker was moving to the left. Out of nowhere, stopped on a dime, jumped up to the right, caught the interception. Jared Goff actually made the right read. He got the linebacker to flow to the right. The linebacker just made an incredible recovery, picked off the pass. But eight minutes left in the fourth quarter is when the Saints eventually pulled away. It was 35-35, and then the Saints went on a tear and scored 10 straight points. Leadership. Drew Brees is the best leader in the NFL among quarterbacks. His players love him. His players respect him. They fight harder for Drew Brees. Now, I want to I point to a moment late in the Saints game where one of Jared Goff's linemen got really mad, cost him a bunch, I think like a 15-yard penalty. And Jared Goff went over to him to console him and try to calm him down. And the guy pushed Jared Goff away, said no. And the lineman completely lost his composure. And Jared Goff, love him. God bless Jared Goff. But he wasn't a good enough leader in that moment to reel it in. And the the Rams kind of looked unbuttoned at the end of that game. Again, in six years, I'll pick Jared Goff to win these games. I'll pick Jared Goff in these big moments. But right now, it's Drew Brees. It's his experience his leadership that beat the Rams. In big moments, the Saints delivered, and they were following Drew Brees, the best leader among all quarterbacks in the NFL. I'll be quite honest. I, I don't know that I like that take. Um, it's, I don't know that I've presented my argument very well, but let's move on to Aaron Rodgers and the New England Patriots. How about the Packers and the Patriots? The Patriots beat the Packers 31-17 to on Sunday Night Football. And I want to ask a question. Why did Tom Brady win? And, and what does that mean? Forget leadership for a second, and let's go strictly to football. Tom Brady's formulaic in the way he plays. In contrast, Aaron Rodgers is more like an improv actor. As if Aaron Rodgers begins a play with no plan. Of course, that's not true. There is a play called by the Packers, but Aaron Rodgers so, so often deviates from the main plan. To Aaron Rodgers, the play call is merely a suggestion. To Tom Brady, the play call is everything. Tom Brady's militant. We are running this play. We will execute it this way. Be in this spot at this time, and it will work. The contrast in style last night between Tom Brady and and Aaron Rodgers was glaring. You got Aaron Rodgers running all over the place. His knee looked pretty good, by the way. He's running all over the place, making incredible throws, avoiding the pass rush. Aaron Rodgers played awesome. It was fun to watch. But Tom Brady was the complete opposite. And there was a play where one a Packers player came free. So the Packers got a ton of pressure right on the snap. Tom Brady said, nope. Threw the ball in the dirt and said, abort the play. This play isn't going to work. It's a play where Aaron Rodgers, if the same thing happens to him, he would have rolled to the right and extended the play and thrown the ball downfield. Complete opposite approaches to football. Who won? Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers? Who won? Was it structure or was it improvisation? Well, it was structure. Tom Brady won 31 to 17. This is why Tom Brady is better than Aaron Rodgers. Both Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers rely on their receivers in different ways. They both need help from their teammates. But Aaron Rodgers depends on his players far more than Tom Brady. Or maybe the better way to put it is he relies on his players differently than Tom Brady. Rodgers depends on his receivers to make plays when he scrambles and runs around. He'll throw the ball up. you got to go get that jump ball. He's going to throw a one-on-one to you. You should catch the one-on-one. Tom Brady has different expectations. Tom Brady simply depends on his receivers to be in the right spot at the right time. 
Follow this plan, and it's going to work. Aaron Rodgers' style means that he works far more than Tom Brady to get yards. And his success is less reliable. You can follow the plan all the time. Aaron Rodgers is more like, again, improvisation. Sometimes it doesn't work. And often, there are times that Aaron Rodgers runs around, he relies on a guy to catch a jump ball, or he, he has to make an incredible, crazy tough throw, and he misses. There were multiple times last night against the Patriots where Aaron Rodgers just missed by like four inches. And because of the way Aaron Rodgers plays, four inches, that's a lot. That's, you can't have that. Because the margin for error for Aaron Rodgers is far, far lower than Tom Brady. Tom Brady does not rely on improvisation. Tom Brady has an ability to dissect teams with his play calling. And and often people say that that's a weakness of his. People say, you know, Tom Brady is a system quarterback. It's not a weakness. Tom Brady's style of play is not as flashy, not as exciting, doesn't offer as many big plays as Aaron Rodgers. But in reality, Tom Brady's style of play demands less from his wide receivers. Be in the right spot at the right time. Catch the dang ball. I'm not asking too much. Tom Brady's formulaic approach is more dependable. And that is why Tom Brady is better than Aaron Rodgers. I'm not done, though, either. Let's talk about leadership. We talked about leadership earlier. I want to go back into that. So Drew Brees is the best leader among quarterbacks in the NFL. There is no quarterback in the NFL that is a better leader than Drew Brees. His teammates love him. Tom Brady's teammates like him. Tom Brady's kind of aloof, and not in a bad way. He's just, he's, aloof is not the right word. He's quirky. He makes little Instagram videos, and he's very passionate, and he always watches film, and Tom Brady's teammates like him. Drew Brees' teammates love him, like versus love. Of course, Tom Brady's teammates revere him. They respect him. They admire him. But it's, it's a different relationship, I truly believe, between Tom Brady and Drew Brees' teammates. But uh, I think it's interesting. If you're in the wrong place, Bill Belichick. So why do the Saints players always do their best? Because they want to fight hard for Drew Brees. They want him to do their guy right. Why are the Patriots players always in the right spot? Because of Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick says, if you're not in the right spot, I'll cut you. And the tandem between Bill Belichick and Tom Brady works perfectly. But it goes to the same effect as Drew Brees. Whether it's motivated by love or fear of losing your job, it's the same thing. Now, Aaron Rodgers, the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, does not have that effect on players. Watch Aaron Rodgers when one of his teammates screw up. He's like, ah, I can't believe I have to deal with these idiots. That is how Aaron Rodgers comes across. What is the motivation to do the right thing if you're a Green Bay Packer? Aaron Rodgers does not seem like someone I would want to be teammates with. In fact, I would, I would leave. I'd go to a different team and say, my boss sucks. I don't want to work with this guy. He's a pain. The way Aaron Rodgers reacts on the sideline when people or in the game, he'll make a throw, guy won't catch it. It's inappropriate. It's not okay. That's not your leader of your franchise. I've watched Aaron Rodgers now for years. I, I think he's far more Jay Cutler than Tom Brady. That's controversial. I don't care. I do not like the way that Aaron Rodgers leads his team. He's the best. He's amazing. People respect him. He's going to get away with far more because he's way better than Jay Cutler. Aaron Rodgers is super talented. But sometimes he acts like a petulant child, and it's not okay. Tom Brady has a different leadership style than Drew Brees. But it works to the same effect. Whether you're a player for the Saints or a player for the Patriots, you line up and do your job. Because you either love Drew Brees or because you're afraid that Bill Belichick will cut you. What is the fear in Green Bay? Aaron Rodgers gets mad at you? (laughs) I I might do things to spite him because I don't like the way Aaron Rodgers acts. We saw Ty Montgomery do that last week for the Green Bay Packers. He acted out. He got cut. He got traded. But 
That kind of stuff doesn't happen in New England. I understand where Aaron Rodgers is coming from. Everybody wants good people to work with. We all want good teammates. But you can't tell me that Aaron Rodgers' teammates fight for him the same way that Drew Brees' teammates do. Tom Brady's a better leader than Aaron Rodgers. Drew Brees is the best. Tom Brady's better than Aaron Rodgers. And Aaron Rodgers, he's a fine leader, I guess. He's not a leader, in my opinion. He's a, he's a guy who's really talented. And I don't think people respect him because you got to like someone to respect them. And if I'm Aaron Rodgers' teammate, I don't, I don't like him. I don't like the way he acts. So Tom Brady's a better leader, and his play style is more reliable. Tom Brady is better than Aaron Rodgers definitively. Okay, we have a lot of good stuff ahead. Uh, we're going to talk about the Pac-12 championship game. We're going to talk about USC. We'll talk about the college football playoff. We're going to talk about Jim Harbaugh and Michigan. We'll do a segment called Surprise of the Weekend. Remember, you can subscribe to Strong Opinion Sports on iTunes, on SoundCloud, and on YouTube. You can find the full entire hour-long podcast on YouTube as well as my best, most interesting clips. Help me grow by telling your friends about this show. Before we go to break, there's been a story circulating. Um, It's that the Raiders apparently would give Jamarcus Russell, their former quarterback, blank game film. They didn't believe he was watching film. And so they'd say, here, take this home and watch it. And he'd come back and say, oh, really good. I loved it. And they're like, they didn't tell him this, but there's nothing on it. He clearly just is lying and didn't watch anything. Um, So this story has been coming back around. I thought this was all public knowledge because this is not new information. It was on a documentary about Jamarcus Russell like five years ago. But uh, for whatever reason, people are acting like this is breaking news. I thought it was worth talking about, but I, I already knew this. I thought a lot of people already knew this, but regardless... It is making the rounds. I thought it was interesting. I thought it was funny. And, uh, man, Jamarcus Russell, just a guy that did not get it. All right, I'm going to take a short break. When I return, again, we'll talk about surprise of the weekend. We'll get into Jim Harbaugh. We'll talk about Monday Night Football. Good stuff ahead. Remember, again, subscribe, iTunes, whatever. My name is Axe Schaumler. I will be right back. All right, we are back. My name is Axe Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports. On Monday Night Football tonight, the Dallas Cowboys play the Tennessee Titans. Play them in Dallas. There's only one story I care about, to be quite honest, and it is Amari Cooper. How does Amari Cooper impact the Dallas Cowboys offense? How does he help Ezekiel Elliott? And how does he impact Dak Prescott? We'll find out. I'm really excited to watch. Um, I I made a video this morning about it. I'm not going to dive in too deep. This will not be a breakout. I put out a breakout from Friday's podcast about this, but I wanted to say in case you didn't hear that, that is what you should watch for on Monday Night Football tonight, which is how does Amari Cooper impact the Cowboys offense? I want to now shift your attention to the surprise of the weekend. I do this every week. I talk about, you know, a bunch of stuff happens in the weekend and what shocked me, what was surprising and crazy to me. This is the surprise of the weekend if you ask me. This weekend, unranked Missouri not only beat number 11 Florida, they won 38-17, to and they were up 35-10 to midway through the third quarter. I, I, could, I was surprised that Missouri so thoroughly dominated the University of Florida. Missouri's quarterback, Drew Locke, was pretty good. He was 24 for 32 passing at 250 yards, three touchdowns, no interceptions. He had a good day. But there's a bit, the biggest surprise to me was that Missouri ran for 221 yards against Florida. I could not have seen that coming. Demaria Crockett, I hope I pronounced that name right, he ran for 114 yards. Larry Roundtree ran for 72 yards. If you told me that Missouri would run for more yards against Florida than Georgia did, I, I don't think I would have believed you a couple weeks ago. It, it's it's uh, good for them. I, I don't know what happened, but that is what happened indeed, is that Missouri ran for more yards against Florida than Georgia did. Wow. Uh, surprising to me. This is a big win for Drew Locke. I'm really happy for him. He's a, a future NFL quarterback. Um, he's got his team now to 5-4. and four. I, It looks like Missouri's going to be bowl eligible. He's got to win one more game. And look, I honestly believe, I, I watched a lot of this game, Drew Locke is going to be much better with NFL coaching. 
Drew Locke right now. I've, I've been kind of unimpressed with Drew Locke. I don't know that it's all his fault. A lot of it, I think, is the way that Missouri structures their play calls, structures their play design. Uh, a lot of the time, I think it looks like Drew Locke is, they're saying, pick a side right or left, and he looks to the left and works from the left to the middle and throws the ball. I, he rarely works all the way across from the left to the right. I think it's because a lot of the time they're not asking him to do that. And so, I don't know. I think, I think honestly, that Drew Locke is going to be better if he goes to the Giants or the Broncos and gets a better quarterback coach who can help him develop. Now, again, I want to just repeat, I could not, I, I just was so surprised that Missouri thoroughly dominated and crushed Florida. That was my surprise of the weekend. I want to now talk about Jim Harbaugh in Michigan because um, it's. I, I've made some videos about Michigan earlier this year. I've said some stuff. I've been pretty – I mean, I, look, I have strong opinions. I, I take a stand. I say what I believe, and when I'm wrong, I acknowledge when I'm wrong. This might be one of those times that I am wrong. The University of Michigan football is 7-1. and one. And according to the top AP poll, they are uh, top and whatever. I, I – Kind of be quite honest, I really struggle to understand rankings anymore because you got AP, you have a USA Today. There's like seven rankings. There's also the college football playoff thing. I can't keep track. But right now, according to the AP poll, Michigan is the number four team in the nation. And I made a video earlier this year talking about Jim Harbaugh. It's called Jim Harbaugh Will Be Fired. And the point of the video was that eventually Michigan is going to get annoyed with Jim Harbaugh and say, we want more from you. Because every year, Jim Harbaugh, the, the premise of this video was Jim Harbaugh every year wins 10 games. He, he like, Jim Harbaugh's a great coach, does wonderful stuff. If I was a Michigan fan, 10 games, plenty for me. I would be happy. The problem is that Urban Meyer, Ohio State's head coach, every year wins 11 games. And so Michigan fans, my theory was at some point they're going to get tired of not, they're going to get tired of Jim Harbaugh being outshined by Urban Meyer. Personally, again, I think Michigan fans can be a little bit ungrateful. Ten wins a year for me, I'm good. Jim Harbaugh, you're there for life. You're good. But uh, Michigan fans, not always enough for them. But as of today, as of right now, Michigan is 7-1. and one. They are the number four team in the nation. Oh, and Ohio State, that other team, they're also 7-1, and one, but they're the number eight team in the nation. And what this means is that we are gearing up and there was a huge opportunity coming ahead for Jim Harbaugh. On November 24th, Michigan plays Ohio State at Ohio State in Columbus, Ohio. This is the game I am looking forward to more than any other football game the rest of the year between now and the Super Bowl. I cannot wait. I cannot wait to watch Michigan-Ohio State. I don't know why I got so excited. I just am... I. I, I love, I'm a fan of football. I love good football. I really, really hope that both Michigan and Ohio State are still one-loss teams by November 24th because that will be the best game of the year, in my opinion. I can't wait to watch. It's a great matchup. I don't know who's going to win. Like, LSU-Alabama, that's a legendary matchup, but we all knew Alabama was going to win that game. Michigan, Ohio State, in Columbus, Ohio, no idea. It's a coin toss, probably leaning... I hope Michigan, probably leaning Ohio State, it's a home game for them. But this is a big, big chance for Jim Harbaugh to prove he's a better coach or on the same level a coach as Urban Meyer. If Urban Meyer, if, if Jim Harbaugh can beat Urban Meyer at Ohio State, that will be a big, big moment for Michigan football. And you will probably not again hear people go, we're tired of Jim Harbaugh. He never wins big games because that's always what people say. And personally, it irritates me. Ten wins is enough for me. I think Jim Harbaugh should be set for life. But Michigan fans are a greedy bunch, and he really needs to win this game on November 24th against Ohio State. It's a big opportunity. The stage is being set, and I cannot wait to see if Jim Harbaugh can prove himself against Urban Meyer and Ohio State later this year. I want to now revisit something I've said uh, earlier this year. Um, how do I put it? I guess this way. Great defense in the NFL doesn't matter. I'll repeat it again. 
having a great defense in the NFL does not matter right now. In 2018, NFL football, it's week 10, doesn't matter anymore. Having a great defense, kind of pointless. I first noticed this when the New England Patriots carved up the Chicago Bears a couple weeks ago. All offseason, I heard there are three legendary defenses in the NFL. You have the Chicago Bears, the Jacksonville Jaguars, and the Denver Broncos. <laughs> well, well uh, the New England Patriots put up 38 points on the Chicago Bears. Carved them up like butter. Tom Brady had 277 yards, three touchdowns, no problem. 38 points on the Bears. And then you look at, well, hmm, how are the Jacksonville Jaguars doing? Oh, the Jaguars are third and five. They don't even lead their division. How's that great defense working out? Or uh, the Broncos with their amazing defense. <laughs> the Broncos are three and six. The problem is they don't have a quarterback. At least the Bears have a winning record. The Bears are five and three. That's better than everybody else with a great defense, supposedly. But the reason why the Bears are so good is because of their quarterback, Mitch Trubisky. My point is this. Defense is no longer as important as it once was. Quarterbacks win games. I mean, the Bears' legendary great defense gave up 31 points to Brock Osweiler. The NFL has changed. Offense is a new defense. I remember when Chip Kelly went to Oregon for the first time. That was his philosophy. We said, we're going to score 70 points. And it doesn't matter how well we play on defense because you can't score 70. Quarterbacks win games. Having an average quarterback and a great defense no longer works in the NFL. The Denver Broncos have a great defense, supposedly. Supposedly? I don't know. But Case Keenum, their quarterback, doesn't cut it. He's not good enough. And therefore, the Broncos, 3-6, and six, they're not going to make the playoffs because of their quarterback, who's not good enough. Their defense can't carry a team. In fact, I don't think any defense in the NFL can carry a team with an average quarterback. The NFL is no longer the way it once was. Look at the NFL. The top four teams in the NFL are the Saints, the Rams, the Chiefs, and the Patriots. What do they all have in common? They have an elite offense led by an elite quarterback. Own that Jaguars defense? Gave up 30 points to the Chiefs. 40 points to the Cowboys. Cowboys! Dak Prescott put up 40 points on the Jaguars. Stop telling me how important it is to have a great defense. It's important to have a great quarterback. And then a good enough defense to get by when you need one stop at the end of the game. But every team in the NFL is going to score 30 points. That's just how it is now. Having a great defense is extremely overrated. You want to win in the NFL? You get a great quarterback, you get a great offensive coach, and you have an elite-level offense. Point to me the great defense that wins their division this year, and I'll shut up. But And maybe the Bears do. Maybe the Bears do. But if the Bears do, it will be because they have a good quarterback and they have an offensive-minded head coach. I'm not saying it hurts to have a great defense. I'm not saying it's bad at all. But the formula to winning now requires a great quarterback. The Broncos, the Jaguars, they don't have one, and that is why the Jaguars aren't winning. Stop telling me how great Saxonville is. Saxonville is so good they can win a game with Blake Bortles. Can they? Because we're not, we're not seeing it right now. Again, my point is this. The NFL has changed, and having a great defense is no longer as important as it once was. Okay, we have one, two... Three, four, hmm. Okay, uh, I'm going to take a break in a minute, but first I want to talk about, I'm going to talk about Kentucky football, and then we will take a short break. No, we won't. It's only 12. I got to clear, I, I got I to do one more segment and clear my throat. I'm, I'm kind of sick today, so I'm going to do Kentucky football, then we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to talk about the college football playoff, we're going to talk about the Pac-12 network, we're going to talk about targeting, helmeting stuff. And uh, it's going to be very good. So in the meantime, I want to talk about Kentucky football. So on Saturday, the University of Kentucky lost to Georgia 34 to 17. And Kentucky is now 7 and 2. And they dropped one spot in the rankings and went from 11th to 12th. And, and I just wanted to be very, very clear. Kentucky has nothing to hang their heads at. 
Kentucky should be absolutely proud of their season. Kentucky's 7-2 and two right now. They have three games left. They play Tennessee, Middle Tennessee, and Louisville. Three extremely winnable games. In fact, the Kentucky Wildcats could have a 10-win season. And that would be awesome for them. I saw a little bit of a narrative after they lost to Georgia. Kentucky fans like, ah, our season is ruined. They were mad, and I understand the disappointment. But I'm, I'm, I'm a Washington State Cougar fan. <laughs> we were awful for years and years and years. And uh, when you have a good year, be grateful. I remember when Washington State got Mike Leach. And uh, last year was a great example. Everyone expected that Washington State would win the Pac-12 championship. Their quarterback, Luke Falk, wasn't good enough. Uh, he crumbled in big moments, got benched, and uh, they didn't. They had like a, I think a nine, they went nine and three. And a lot of Washington State fans were like, oh no, awful season. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, do you remember when we were like, oh, and like nine years ago? Remember how bad it was? Do you forget how bad it was? It was like Washington State football was the Cleveland Browns of college football. They were awful. And so I think Kentucky's a very similar program where they just had a lot of struggle. But they're a program on the rise, also similar to the way Washington State is turning around. And uh, I really think that Kentucky football fans should be incredibly proud of their season. They should be grateful. They should hope for 10 wins. That would be awesome. Losing to Georgia sucked. But I, I look back at the years, man. This is the best year that, uh, that Kentucky's going to have since 2007. I mean, this is a, a great, historic wonderful season for Kentucky football. They have nothing to be ashamed of, everything to be proud of because they are a program on the up and up, on the rise, and I'm really, really happy for everyone involved with Kentucky football. All right, my name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. When I return, we will talk about, we're going to talk about the Pac-12 championship. We're going to talk about why the Pac-12 is not going to make it into the college football playoff. We're going to talk about who I think is going to make it into the college football playoff. And we're going to talk about targeting rules and targeting hits. Um, I'm also going to talk about Washington State football, something I rarely ever do. I know people don't like that because it's not a nationally relevant team. But right now is the one time in the history of my entire time at Washington State that they will be nationally relevant. They're ranked in the top 10. I'm going to take advantage of it. I'm going to talk about Washington State football. My name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. I will be right back all right we are back remember you can subscribe to strong opinion sports on itunes on soundcloud on youtube you know that if you're listening to this you probably are on one of those platforms already and to help me grow by telling your friends about this show um full disclosure i have now pitted out this shirt and uh, i'm so glad i recorded my little like I, I, I do poses and stuff for my my thumbnails and i did that before the podcast because i knew i just had a thought it was like it's really hot in this room I can't open the window because of there's bugs outside and it's a mess. And so I knew that I was probably going to ruin this shirt and uh, not ruin it. But, you know, for now, I mean, I'm not, I'm not daring to lift up my arms. So now that I've given you far too much information, let's talk about some sports. I am a student at Washington State University. I go to Pullman, Washington. Um, and right now, Washington State is actually the top ranked team in the Pac-12. It's them and University of Washington, and it's, it's really cool. And Washington State, my home school, is the last hope for the Pac-12 to make it into the college football playoff. And normally I do not discuss Washington State football. In fact, I don't, know, I don't even care. It's rarely nationally relevant, but I want you to please humor me. Um, they almost lost to Cal on Saturday. I want to discuss that game. Then I want to talk about the Pac-12 playoff chances why I think the Pac-12 has no chance to make it into the Pac-12 championship even though my home team Washington State will probably be the team that wins the Pac-12 and then finally I want to talk about what I well four teams I believe are going to get into the college football playoff let's start with Washington State football so on Saturday Washington State University almost lost to Cal they won 19 to 13 I would say the way I would put it is that Washington State survived their game against Cal. Now, WSU is in good shape. They're 8-1. They're the number 10 team in the nation, depending on who you look at. 
And I want to discuss the game because I have a couple thoughts. I was there in attendance. Um, and first of all, I want to say the refs were just horrendous. I, I, I rarely say that. I often side with refs. I don't like when people criticize referees. Um, but Cal had two penalties for 25 yards. And in contrast, Washington State was called for seven penalties, totaling 80 yards to the benefit of Cal. And I understand Washington State didn't play very well, but there were some really egregious calls. There were some questionable holding calls that were called against Washington State, but when Cal did the same thing, they were not called. I was on the sideline. Coaches were infuriated. And then there was a weird targeting call at the end of the, end of the I think, second half, something like that. And I just was, it was very clear to me, how was that targeting? I watched the Washington State player lead with the shoulder, and I just questioned. I was like, so what is targeting? I don't understand. And it felt like the refs were not, they weren't, they were not there to give any calls to Washington State. I, I'm not a conspiracy guy. I know that Mike Leach, the head coach for Washington State, has been very upset about certain calls, feeling like Washington State hasn't gotten calls. And that's how it felt like on Saturday. Like the Pac-12 might be, and I don't know, maybe, maybe Mike Leach made people angry. And so the Pac-12 is like, we're going to give them less calls. It's a subconscious thing. I don't know. But the point is this, that Washington State did not play very well. They held Cal to 13 points, and they almost lost. And any time you hold a team to 13 points, especially in an air raid offense, you must win. WSU did win, but barely. It was really ugly. And the truth is that Washington State's offense just simply made far too many mistakes. They could not finish drives. And they're lucky that Cal's coach is a weird, stubborn old guy who is, he's not, he's not old. He's just a, he's a defensive-minded coach who loves to run the football. And they're committed to this two-quarterback system at Cal that's completely inefficient. It's not good. Neither quarterback really gets in a good rhythm. And, and Washington State's very lucky for that because Washington State should have lost on Saturday to Cal. Instead, um, they hung around and found a way to win in the end. They, they scored a, a touchdown with like 30 seconds left. And the way I would put it is that, yes, Washington State did not play well. They didn't. They, they won, but it was ugly. It was their ugliest win of the year. And, and usually I'm very, very hard on Washington State football, but here is what I would say about this. WSU survived their bad game. Everybody plays a bad game at some point in the year of college football. And Washington State thankfully survived theirs, which is a big deal. I mean, you, it's very easy. We've seen a lot of teams slip up. Clemson lost to Troy a couple years ago. Like, it's weird. Everyone has a bad game. Washington State had a bad game and still won. It's a very, very important thing. It bodes well for Washington State's chances to win the Pac-12 championship. It was ugly, but it was a victory. And Washington State survived their game against Cal. Now, Washington State's 8-1. and one. They're the only one-loss team left in the Pac-12. And they are the last hope for the Pac-12 conference to make it into the college football playoff. In fact, every other Pac-12 team has at least three losses. So WSU has to go on to beat Colorado and beat Arizona at home and finally play the Apple Cup, University of Washington at home. At Colorado is going to be a tough game. The last two games I think are incredibly doable. I think it's very likely that Washington State plays USC in the Pac-12 championship game. Now, the reason for this, the reason why it's going to be Utah is that Utah's, excuse me, USC, USC and Washington State will play each other in the Pac-12 championship. Utah's quarterback got hurt. Arizona has three more conference games to play. They play UCLA, Oregon, then Arizona. I don't see Arizona State going 3-0 in the next three weeks. And USC's final three games, only two of them are Pac-12 games. They play Cal and UCLA. Both extremely winnable games. In fact, games I think USC should win. USC should be in the Pac-12 championship. They play Notre Dame at the end of the year. It's going to look bad for... USC's probably going to get blown out by Notre Dame. And because that's not a Pac-12 game, they're still going to make it into the Pac-12 championship. And um, that's what I think is going to happen. I really think USC and Washington State are going to play. It's going to be a very good game. Uh, Washington State lost to USC actually in LA earlier this year, 39-36. to but that, that's what I see happening. That's how I see the Pac-12 working out. Washington State likely wins. Maybe USC does. But either way, there is no chance that the Pac-12 conference is going to get into the college football playoff. It's not going to happen. I hate to say it, but it's true. There is no absolutely 0% chance 
of the Pac-12 making it into the college football playoff. Here's why. The first two slots are going to get taken up by Alabama and Clemson. It's a done deal. They're going to get in. And then if Notre Dame goes undefeated, they're going to get in as well. And that leaves only one spot left with three conferences all vying for that spot. Then you have the Big Ten, the Big 12, and the Pac-12. Pac-12 is already the odd man out normally. The Big 12 might even miss out this year because Notre Dame's so good. But if, if Notre Dame does lose a game, then Virginia, West Virginia or Oklahoma likely gets in. They're going to win the Big 12. And you're going to see, you know, the, the last four spots will go, the, the last, the five conferences will work out like this. Bama's going to get the first spot in the SEC. Clemson will get the second spot of the ACC. Notre Dame, if they go undefeated, gets the third spot. And then it'll be the Big 10, then the Big 12, and then the Pac-12. The Pac-12 likely the best chance for WSU, the highest they can finish, in my opinion, is sixth in the nation. If they go undefeated the rest of the year and win the Pac-12 championship, which is still a long shot. And it's more than likely that even if WSU runs the table, a two-loss Georgia team or even a three-loss Georgia team gets more respect than Washington State and is ranked still higher than Washington State even. So I, there's no doubt in my mind, there's no way I, in the foreseeable future that the Pac-12 conference is going to have a team representing them in the college football playoff. The Big 12 is going to get in ahead of the Pac-12. The Big 10, whether it's Ohio State or Michigan, one of those two teams is going to get in. And there, there's just no chance for them to make it in. It's just not possible. The Pac-12 is the odd man out, sadly but truthfully. Um, and it gets even worse if Notre Dame makes it in because then only three of the five Power 5 conferences are going to have a berth into the college football playoff. So to be very clear, the Pac-12 has already been eliminated from the college football playoff. Here's my prediction for the final four spots. I guess the, the only four spots. This is my prediction for the four spots in the college football playoff. First, we're going to have Alabama. Alabama's unbelievable. They crushed LSU last week, who beat Georgia by two touchdowns, by the way. LSU is a good team, and they got crushed by Alabama. Nobody is close to Alabama in college football. Maybe Clemson, but I don't even think Clemson is. I mean, on third and 11 before halftime, 29 seconds left, Alabama was just trying to run up the clock they ran like 14 yards for a first down. They're not even trying to get first downs, and they're succeeding. It's unbelievable. Alabama is terrifyingly dominant. They're the best team in college football. They're going to make it into the college football playoff. Next, you have Clemson. The clear one and two, Bama and Clemson, is not going to change. In the last four weeks, Clemson has destroyed everybody. They beat Wake Forest 63-3. to Then Clemson beat NC State 41-7. to They killed Florida State. 59 to 10, and then they just decimated this past weekend. They decimated Louisville 77 to 16. There's nobody close to Alabama and Clemson. The third spot in the college football playoff is going to go to undefeated Notre Dame. They got tested this past weekend by Northwestern. Uh, it was 24 to 14 when Northwestern blocked a punt, which got them within in their own in their red zone with eight minutes left. But Notre Dame survived. They won 31-21. And now the final three games for Notre Dame, they play Florida State, who's a mess. They play Syracuse, who has a solid quarterback, Eric Dungy, a good guy from my area and in, in the, the country. Uh, hometown, actually, from Portland. From like Oswego, I'm from Portland, right next to each other. And then their final game is Notre Dame plays USC. Notre Dame is going to run the table. They're going to beat USC's true freshman quarterback. Notre Dame's going to go undefeated and make it into the college football playoff. Now, the fourth spot in the college football playoff is going to go to the Big Ten champion. Right, wrong, or indifferent, that's what I think is going to happen. It's going to come down to Michigan or Ohio State. They play each other on November 4th. A lot of people will tell you that the official Big Ten championship game is on December 1st. It's not true. I know that the winner of the Big Ten East plays the Big Ten West at some point. Great. But on November 24th in Columbus, Ohio... When Michigan plays Ohio State, that is the unofficial but true Big Ten championship game. If you want to see the two best teams in the Big Ten vying for the championships, that's going to be it right there. 
And the only way that a Big 12 school gets in is if Notre Dame loses. So again, my four slots in the pack in the college football playoff will be Alabama number one, Clemson number two, Notre Dame number three, and the Big Ten champion number four. I'm hoping Michigan. I'm probably going to bet on Ohio State because they have a home game against Michigan on November 24th. Those are the four teams I am picking to make it into the college football playoff. Okay, we have one last thing I want to talk about. It's uh, it's a controversial one. It's an interesting one. I think it's it's a a healthy debate to have. I think I need to drink some water before I get into this one because it's a very, uh, for some people, it's a very testy debate. Dude, I have, a, I have a throat infection right now. And no matter what I do, I have just like a glob sitting in my throat that hurts. And I, it's like mucus and I can't, it's just, it's so painful and it stinks. <clears throat> I want to talk now about targeting calls in college football. I was at a, a, the game on Saturday. It was between Washington State and Cal. And there was, in my opinion, a really stupid unfair targeting call that was made. Washington State, the player, hit a Cal guy with his shoulder. They reviewed it, and what was interesting is they reviewed the play and still called it targeting. I thought it was a total miscall. And recently, similar things have happened all over college football. We saw at an LSU game recently, what appeared to be a really bad targeting call was made. And I understand the frustration. I, I was victim of it this weekend. My team lost a player, and it seemed unfair. However, I want to say that this is my perspective on the new targeting rules in really all of football, because it's not just college football, it's not just the NFL. The culture in all of football is changing. It's trending safer than it once was. Football is not 100% safe, and it never will be. It's not possible in a full contact sport. But football is making progress. I really see a lot of, I think, beneficial changes happening in football. And even better... The perception of football is changing. People I know that are my age go, oh, they're really attempting to make football safer. Maybe my kids actually can play football. Because that's the fear is that football gets shut down because too many people are having head injuries and no one decides to ever play. Now, I've been watching this new targeting rule. It seems really ambiguous and inefficient. And it appears that the new targeting rules in all of football, NFL, college, it's the appearance is that it's better safe than sorry. If it's close, it's a penalty. If it looks like it might be targeting, pull the trigger. It is. We're going to change the culture of football. And I really, really believe that's good for the future of the sport, for the longevity of the football, the NFL, college, regardless. I think it's good for football. Football is the butt of many, many jokes about head injuries. And at some point your team is going to be victim of a bad targeting call. First, I want to say this. The perception of football is pretty low in America. It's just not great. You have a lot of comedians making jokes. Oh, not, that guy's really dumb. He must have played football. It's not, it's not good. But slowly but surely, I do believe the culture in America and perception of football is changing. Because of these rules, give it 20 years, I think it's going to be much healthier climate towards head injuries, and we're going to be a lot safer than it was before. Now, I want to say this. At some point, your team is going to be a victim of an unfair targeting call. My team was on Saturday. Washington State, we had a player I thought unfairly ejected. But that's the trade-off. That's what happens. If you want things to be safer, if you want perception to change, you've got to be willing to put up with some negative. The issue of targeting, especially in college football, the way those rules work, it's never going to be perfectly solved. But it's better safe than sorry. It's better than it could be. Honestly, I I really do not understand the helmet-to-helmet rules at all. In the NFL, the targeting rule in college football, none of it makes sense to me. I don't understand. It seems all over the place. Sometimes guys hit hit with their shoulder. That's called as helmet-to-helmet. I go, how is that helmet-to-helmet? I don't understand. But... If that's the price of safety and the price of better public perception, I can accept that. I can accept some missed calls. I can accept some unfairness, some 
ambiguity of the rules. I would rather them be overly cautious than not cautious enough. Does that make sense? I just think it's better safe than sorry. I love football. It's my favorite sport in the world. It's my favorite thing in the world. There's nothing I love in the world more than the sport of football. And that's why I want football to still be around. When I'm a 60-year-old man, I want to sit down on my couch and still watch the Packers play the Vikings because that's what I love to do. And if that means changing the rules about helmets and targeting all that stuff, if that's what it takes, I'm down because I don't want to lose the sport I love. I think I really believe that better safe than sorry attitude that maybe it's overly cautious. I don't know, but I'm okay with it. If, if there's some unfair ejections, if there's some unfair penalties, I can live with it. If it means that 50 years from now, I can still watch football on my couch. That attitude, better safe than sorry, I think is going to help keep football around and extend the longevity of the league. I'm, I'm all for it. I don't like the ambiguity. I don't like the confusion. I don't like what seems like really bad, unfair calls. But if that's the cost to keep my favorite sport around, cool. That makes sense to me. All right, guys, that's my show. That is the entire episode of Strong Opinion Sports for today. My throat freaking hurts. I can't. I, I am going to not talk the rest of the afternoon. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it here. I really appreciate you guys. This is my favorite thing in the world. Remember, remember to subscribe, share, tell your friends, all that good stuff. Um, I'm going to change my shirt. I'm going to probably rinse out my throat with salt water because I need something to help. This really hurts. Um, I just want to say thank you so much. I love doing Strong Opinion Sports. My favorite thing in the world. My throat is not because of talking for an hour. It's not related at all. It's because of, I think I got sick this weekend at a football game. Uh, I was in the cold rain. Ugh. Yeah, it hurts. I need, I need to stop talking. But I do appreciate you guys. I'll be back on Wednesday. On Wednesday, we're going to talk about Sam Darnold had four interceptions on Sunday. I'm going to dive into it. I'm going to really watch the film and see what happened. We're going to talk about JT Daniels, the USC quarterback. We'll do the Deadly Dozen. We'll do Zach as a genius. We're going to talk about that Redskins-Falcons game. We'll talk, of course, about Monday Night Football happening later tonight. Uh, Dak Prescott, yada, yada. We'll preview the Thursday Night Football game. And on Saturday, on Wednesday, I'll tell you why Patrick Mahomes is the NFL MVP. I think it's pretty clear. There's not a lot to say there. All right, guys. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. I'll be back on Wednesday. But um bum bam we are done. Bye.